This is the day the Lord hath made. We will and be glad in it. Would you take your Bibles with me and turn to Matthew chapter 28. I'd like to look with you both this morning and this evening at the last paragraph of Matthew where I, my mind and heart have been over these past four or five weeks. And so when Pastor Brent asked if I would share with you, I was delighted to be able to come and to do that. And I just thank the Lord for Pastor Brent, for Carissa, for the kids and how well uh, they have led us and also how well you have followed as a fellowship. And it's a great delight uh, to Martha's in my heart. People are asking all the time, what's it like after 33 years doing one thing? I said, wow, was it 33 years? And they look at me and say, yeah, it was 33 years. And, but um, we, we are really thrilled with, with the plan of God, the will of God, the design of God. And we're very thankful to the Lord that that has included staying here with you in this fellowship. And we're grateful to the Lord that we can still rub shoulders together, be together, and uh, know that God's hand is here upon us for his honor, for his glory. So uh, thank you for your prayers. Thank you for all that God um, has used you to be in our lives, and we want to be a, a blessing to you. And this morning when I think about this particular text that's in front of me, um, I don't think there's a grander text or a grander New Testament book. Uh, but I think it's important for us to capture this, and so Pastor Bren has given me both this morning and this afternoon to be able to do that with you. So let's begin, first of all, with the most important thing we can do, and that's open up the text and read it. So would you please stand with me in the honor of God's word as we look together at this text. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they, what's the next word in your text? They worshiped. However, some doubted or hesitated. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, all that I have taught you, all I have directed you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Lord, we stand in your presence and we acknowledge today that if we are to understand the text, if our minds are to be illumined to truth, it will not be because of the nouns and verbs of a preacher. It will be because of the Holy Spirit and willing hearts, hearts that are open to truth, hearts that are open to change, hearts that are open to what you have for them today. This is your day. So we rejoice that you have brought us together on this Sunday. We rejoice that that our church desires to go hard after the scriptures. We rejoice in a pastor that leads us to go hard after the scriptures. So I pray that today we can come alongside and we can be an encouragement to us today to see what God has for us in our world in which we live, a very dark world, spiritually dark, theologically dark. 
I pray that you would help us today to understand this truth. So we pillow our head tonight and we look back upon all the events of this day and we say, it has been good, it's been good to be in the house of the Lord. So Lord, this is your work, these are your people, this is your time, this is your scripture. So would you accomplish your will, we pray in your name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. The Gospel of Matthew is not a biography. A biography, by definition, is a detailed account of someone's life. This is not a detailed account of Jesus' life. In fact, in John chapter 21, the Gospel of John, the last verse, John says, I suppose that all the books of the world could not contain everything Jesus did. So this is not a biography. What this is, though, is a theological biography. What I mean by that is this. The author, Matthew, has selected certain events, certain sermons certain stories and put them together for a specific purpose. The church has been so amazed at this book that in the canon, though the book of Matthew was not written first, so amazed at the depth and the power of this particular book that it puts it first in our canon of New Testament scriptures. So what I want you to see is how Matthew put together by maybe looking back at chapter 1. Would you turn back to chapter 1 very quickly to see what Matthew does to put this book together. He actually has a fourfold purpose and three of them can be clearly seen in chapter 1. When you open up chapter 1 of Matthew verse 1, it says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, or some of your texts say Jesus the Messiah, which is right because that's exactly what Christ means, Messiah. And then right after that, from verse 2 down to verse number 16, you have a genealogical record. And the reason for that is because Matthew is going to present Jesus as the rightful heir to the throne of David. So every king must have a genealogical record that ties him to David. So Matthew opens up without fanfare, without uh, anything except to say, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. The second thing Matthew does in the text is this, is the way he presents Messiah is through a name, which is an incredible thing. Verse 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Look at verse number 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Messiah. Look at verse number 19. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, Mary's husband, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce Mary quietly. And as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. So Matthew, first of all, is going to present that the Messiah is the rightful heir. This one is the rightful heir to the kingly throne. And the second thing Matthew is going to do is to announce the name of the Messiah. It's Jesus, which means God is salvation. There's a third thing that's going to happen. In fact, really, verse 25, if you just want to finish that Jesus name out, he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I mean, it's just the text is filled. The very first chapter of your New Testament is going to announce over and over again the name of the Christ. It's Jesus. 
And then the third thing Matthew is going to do, which is amazing here, and you see this in the dream of chapter 1, verse number 22 and 23, as the angel is speaking to Joseph, says this in 21, she'll bear the son, his name is Jesus, he'll save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son, call his name Emmanuel, which, which means God with us. So the third thing that's happening with Matthew anyway is that he is going to show how this Messiah, who is named Jesus, fulfills the Old Testament scriptures. That's extremely important. So that when Jesus steps onto the scene of history, he is the one who fulfills everything that has been prophesied about his coming to this earth. In fact, in the book of Matthew, the number, depending on who you follow, is a little different, but it's all, all the numbers are this. Over 60 times in the book of Matthew, Matthew will quote from the Old Testament, and often he will say, this is to fulfill, and the scriptures have been written and now are fulfilled, and this is fulfilled. And you'll see this here, and it's very important. Why is it important? Because of what this text says in Isaiah 7, 14. Two things. One, he will be identified that he will not have an earthly father. That would be amazing. A virgin? Conception? Birth? And the second thing is look at his name. His name is Emmanuel, which means what? What does your text say? What? God is with us. So it's important to see that there is a divine character to this son that is born of a virgin. And without him saying anything, he just says this. This fulfills the Old Testament. What did the Old Testament say? A virgin will conceive. There will be the birth of a son and his character is divine. Without having to give three or four paragraphs to make that statement. Matthew is masterful. He is masterful in the way that he handles the Old Testament. He's masterful in the way he can get his point across without giving you a number of paragraphs. So he lays out in this gospel, this theological biography that is pointed so that all will know that this is the rightful heir to, to the throne of David, that this man's name is Jesus, God's salvation this one fulfills all the old testament prophecies which means he had an amazing beginning virgin birth upon this earth and he has divine character he is of divine character but i said there were four there's a fourth thing that's i think extremely important with the with the gospel of matthew and we've missed this in the church over the last centuries not in the early centuries of the church but in the last centuries of the church we have missed this and that is this matthew is a manual on discipleship it is a manual on discipleship. When you read, as we read just a few moments ago, that we are to teach all the nations the commands of Jesus, well, it's in the book of Matthew. Matthew is writing a book so that you might know what it means to be a disciple. The disciple is a learner. It is a learner who has a relationship with his teacher. It is a learner who has a relationship to his teacher, and that relationship has moved him to commitment. All of that is within mathetes. All of that is within the disciple. And so when you look at this text, this text that we hold in our hands is the way that the early church discipled the believers. And so all those commands 
Only Matthew has five major sermons of all the books in the world has five major sermons of Jesus. You have the Sermon on the Mount, five to seven. You have the commission, mission of the, of the 12. That's in chapter 10. You have the parables message. That's in chapter 13. You have the forgiveness and humility message to the disciples. That's chapter 18. And then you have the Olivet Discourse or the end times explanation, which is chapters 24 to 25. And in between all that, you have narratives of Jesus speaking and teaching. So just the five sermons comprise 35% of the book of Matthew. Add to that all of the teachings and the preachings of Christ that are within Matthew, and you're moving to 40 and 45% of the book are the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of the book, he says, now take this and give it to the disciples of all the nations and teach them to follow this. Today we have discipleship books, and I'm not opposed to that. Today we have discipleship things and formats and formulas, and I'm not opposed to those. But what do we do with Jesus' words? The church is languishing today because they don't know what Jesus has said and how that impacts our life. So when I come to the Gospel of Matthew, I come to this book on discipleship. And let me say to you, this is very personal for Matthew. Very personal for Matthew. Turn to chapter 9, if you will. I was so thankful, Pastor Brent. I didn't beg him for two services, but he knows I can't do everything in one message. I was just so thankful. He said, please take both. And I was delighted to do that so I could at least give some introduction to this incredible first book in your canonical New Testament. But I want you to see how personal discipleship is to Matthew so maybe you can catch a glimpse of why the last paragraph is so significant as it ties together the entire book of Matthew. Chapter 9, verse 9, And Jesus passed from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him these words, Follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Verse number 10 doesn't say it because Matthew's very humble, but he's a rich man. And Mark 2 tells us that it was his house, Matthew's house, in which all this, these people were coming and where this great party had been given by Matthew so he could introduce all of his sinner friends to Jesus. And when the, disciple, when the Pharisees saw this, verse number 11, they said to his disciples, this is awesome. Is that what your text says? He said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when he heard it, he said, those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. And Luke 5 adds to this phrase, I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Which is exactly how the gospel message began. Repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, Matthew was a man who, who took this very, very personally. He is sitting at the tax booth, 
And sitting at the tax booth, Jesus says to him, follow me. And the text says in verse number 9 that he rose and followed him. Again, that's a very humble statement to which Luke embellishes so you, the reader, can know exactly what happened. Luke 5, 28. And leaving everything, Matthew rose and followed Jesus. This made such an impression on all of those around him that this one who was a tax collector, who was the friend of many, many sinners. They had to come and see this one Jesus, and so the house is jam-packed with sinners. I think it's interesting today that when we talk about following Jesus, it's sort of like putting Sunday school pins on our sport coat. I love Dr. Butterfield's book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, a lesbian converted to Christ. She writes these words, conversion to me was a complicated and comprehensive chaos. Two worldviews clashed. The reality of my lived experience and the word of God. They clashed. And that's exactly what is taking place. It's volcanic. It's, it's, it, it interrupts your normal daily life. You no longer have this life that is smooth, that integrates with your people, and you quietly move in your world as an individual who is, yes, I'm a disciple, but I'm a secret follower of Jesus. That's not known in the text. It's volcanic. It erupts. It changes. Your life goes from calm to chaos. Because no one in the world, Jesus said in John 15, is going to love you because they hated me and they are going to hate you. Matthew was the tax collector of Capernaum. I love what France writes in his book, Matthew, Teacher and Evangelist. He writes these words, A tax collector would have been far removed from the religious society of his day. The Orthodox Jews hated him for his allegiance to Rome, and the Gentiles despised him because he constantly was overtaxing them to line his own bank account. Matthew is the only gospel that puts tax collectors and prostitutes in the same breath. And you find that in chapter 21, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Here, the tax collectors and the sinners because that was his life. Who else is going to surround him with all that money? How is he going to live in his world? How is he going to enjoy his world? This was his life. And only Matthew does this to help us understand the significance of this idea of discipleship. Men and women today, discipleship is going to wreck your life. You're no longer going to be able to get up at a late hour and go to bed at a late hour because you're watching this or doing that with your me time. You are now a disciple. You are a learner of the teacher who now has a relationship with that teacher, and that relationship has moved you to commitment. Now back to the last paragraph of Matthew. This is an amazing paragraph. So what Matthew does is, after 28 or 27 and a half chapters... He binds all of his major themes up, and he binds them up in a paragraph. And this is going to give a sense of completion to the book. 
But I want you to see some very interesting things here. And tonight, I'm going to be a little more exegetical as I go through verses 18, 19, and 20. But I want to specifically look at 16 and 17 with you this morning, just for a few thoughts. Now, the 11 disciples, that's the first time the word 11 is used in Matthew. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee. That's an amazing statement because chapter 21 to ch chapter 28a, it's all the seven days of Jesus' passion took place in Jerusalem. And now we have this, this sort of this Galilean narrative. I want you to go to Galilee, the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped and some doubted. And so Jesus spoke to them about his authority. When I look at what is taking place here, in verse number 16, Matthew is providing for the reader a caution. In verse number 17 and 18, Matthew is providing for the reader a correction. And then he's going to provide for the reader in verse 19 and 20 a command, one command. So that's what Matthew was doing in this simple paragraph that is before us. And he, as he gathers together the theological threads of his entire book, what's so amazing about going into Galilee is this, is the defeat of Golgotha, which is chapters 21 through 27, the defeat of Golgotha is transformed into the triumph of Galilee. And this transformation that takes place is a transformation upon which the mission of the church is now dignified by Jesus and directed by Jesus to act until the end of the age. You see, brothers and sisters, why this is so important is that Matthew was not written for the pastor of the church. Matthew was not written for the deacons of the church or the Iwana director of the church. Matthew was written to carpenters and to fishermen and to saved prostitutes and tax collectors and to orthodox scribes who have repented, the ethnics of every kind, both genders, the young and the old, all of them in this paragraph are dignified by Jesus and directed to act until the end of the age. But it's significant to me in this caution that it takes place in Galilee. There's a reason for that. There's only two Galilean narratives in Jesus' post-resurrection chronicles that we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This one here, a simple paragraph, and then John chapter 21 gives an entire chapter, but that chapter only takes place with seven, but that takes place in Galilee. That probably took place between verse 16 and 17 of our text that we hold in our hand, Matthew 28. But Galilee's important. Why is that? Turn back to chapter 4. Would you do that quickly for me? Chapter 4. How did Jesus begin his ministry? Remember, one of the things that Matthew is saying is that Jesus is going to fulfill the Old Testament scripture. So in Matthew 4.12, when he heard that John had been arrested, he, Jesus, withdrew into what? What's the last word? Into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth... He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be what? What does your text say? Might be fulfilled. This is a reason why Matthew is laying out for us this theological biography. Well, what did he say in Isaiah? Verse 15. 
the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the seas beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the, next word, Gentiles. When you think of Galilee, you think of the scribes and the Pharisees. However, in Isaiah chapter 9, which is 800 years before Jesus steps onto the scene, they saw Galilee not as a location where all of these Jews, they saw it as a location of all the ethnics. Beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the ethnics, the people, these ethnics, are dwelling in darkness. However, they've seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them this light has dawned. The splash of light from the life of the Lord Jesus Christ is going onto the land around Galilee of the nations. And as it splashes around, no one gets it. That's the purpose of Matthew. Jesus goes through the book of Matthew, all the things he said, all the miracles he did, and he comes to the end and they crucify him. What's so important, as I stated, that defeat of Golgotha is going to be transformed into a triumph at at Galilee because the very start of Jesus' ministry where Matthew says this light has dawned, at the end of the book, he takes those 11 disciples that are still remaining, he speaks to them in Galilee and says to them, you now are going to be the interpreters of that light. I shined. I lived. I died. I rose again. I am going to be enthroned in heaven, chapter 26, verse 64. I'm going to be enthroned in heaven. And so all authority is mine. So here's what I want you to do. Go interpret the light. You see, the message of Matthew is extremely important, brothers and sisters. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection has no connection, Paul writes in chapter 10 of Romans. How shall they know of this unless somebody is sent? How shall they know of this unless people are preaching and declaring? And he's not talking about, as I stated before, about the guy who's paid to stand behind the pulpit. He is talking about those who have learned, those who have a relationship, and those who are committed. They're disciples. And they come from every walk of life. They come from every imaginable place in the world. And the moment they have a relationship with Jesus Christ and the commitment takes place, now they become, by their lives, they become an interpreter to the world of light. So Matthew writes in chapter 5, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And guess what they're going to do? They're going to go, this doesn't come from man. There's got to be a divine explanation. (laughs) There's got to be a divine explanation. Well, I see I haven't started my message yet. (laughs) But it is very important to capture what is happening in your hand, the word. What has taken place under the direction of the Spirit of God as he moves a sinner, a tax letter. What's interesting to me in chapter 10 is that when Matthew chronicles the 12 disciples, verse number 2 of chapter 10, the 12 apostles, 
Ten of them are identified by their name and their family. One of them is identified by his future, Judas, who will betray. And one of the twelve is identified by his past life, Matthew, the tax collector. This is deeply personal for Matthew. It is the summation. This paragraph is the summation of where, where he has been going. It is to help you understand and help me understand as readers, all who read, that this is not for professional people. This is for every person who A, is a learner, who B, has a relationship, and who C, is committed to Jesus Christ. If you're not committed, leave. This isn't for you. If you aren't committed, here it is. It's for all of us. So when I look at this caution, the caution that challenges me is this, and if I could give it to you very briefly, now the 11 disciples go to Galilee because they are going to be directed to be the interpreters of the light. And they go to a mountain which Jesus had directed them, one of the most heart-saddened statements that you can see is right here in verse 16. Turn back, if you will, to chapter 26. Look at verse 14. Matthew's going to highlight this. Then one of the twelve, whose name is Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. One of the twelve. Look down at verse 20. Same chapter. When it was evening, he reclined a table with the who? With the twelve. And as they're eating, he says, one of you is going to be my betrayer. Look over verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, and notice how he's identified, one of the twelve. And there's with him a great crowd of swords, with swords and clubs and chief priests and the elders of the people. And here's Matthew's play of the hand here through his pen. Now the betrayer had given him a sign. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 1? The significance of an apostle. There were 12 apostles. We're not talking disciples. We're talking about apostles. Those who had been personally commissioned by Jesus Christ. When they are going to replace Judas in Acts chapter 1, I want you to see this text. Verse 15, Acts 1.15, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the, of the persons was about 120. And he says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested him. And here it is, verse 17. Two things. Number one, Judas had been numbered among us. Judas was on the list. Judas was an apostle. And number two, the ESV translated, was allotted his share in this ministry. What is significant about this phrase is that it expresses this truth. That Judas did not politic for the office of apostle. He did not grasp the office, as TD&D states it, for himself, but it had been allotted to him by God through Christ, just like the other 11, end quote.
Here is one of the 12. And this one who is a 12, one of the 12, did everything. He preached. He healed. He prayed. He ate with Jesus. He sang the hymns. He did the Passover, the other two, especially, that we have chronicled. All of these things, he was there. No one knows. But there's an interesting play in words in Acts 1. As they get ready to choose, I want you to notice this. Verse number 24, Acts 1. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know what? You who know the hearts of all people, show us which one of these two you want. You see, there's a play on words with Peter. Because if you look back at, and you turn back if you'd like to, to chapter 28 of Matthew. When you go back to Matthew 28, there's 11 guys. And this term 11 is the only time it's found in the gospel of Matthew. And it's a term of caution because there were at one time 12 But can I say this to you, and I think Matthew's going to bear this out in his text as he works through this manual on discipleship. This genuine spirituality is a matter of the heart. It is not that they come to church. It is not that they sing. It is not that they pray. And in this case, it is not that they were healing. It is not that they didn't experience some level of power. Judas had fooled fooled all the apostles, but he had not fooled Jesus. That's why in chapter 26 I read to you, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. So as a caution here. You see, there are people who say, oh yeah, I am a disciple. You may be a a quasi-Christian, you may be an intellectual Christian, but you, you have never moved. You can be a learner of Jesus, you can even say I have a relationship with Jesus, but the issue of commitment is what is going to distinguish the disciples in the book of Matthew, the disciples in the book of John. Just read John 6. Then the disciples, when they heard this, says, we can't take any more of this, we're leaving, they walked away. See, genuine spirituality is a matter of the heart. Again, if I could quote from Dr. Butterfield, this is what she writes. Christianity scared me when she was at Syracuse University. Christianity scared me and still scares me when they reduce Christianity to a lifestyle and claim God is on the side of those who attend the rules of that lifestyle which they have invented. See, Romans 10 is going to say this, with the heart Man believes unto righteousness, and then with the mouth, confession is made to salvation. So no one can see someone else's heart. So when we come to discipleship, this is the issue. The issue is the heart, the heart, the heart. There's something else that I see here that's interesting to me too, and that's this. After you read chapter 21 all the way to 28a, why in the world... Would you want to do anything with these 11? Look back, if you will, at chapter 26 and verse 56. It says this, All this had taken place so the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. There it is. One of his purposes. But look at the last phrase of verse 56. Then 
all the disciples left him running. It wasn't that they just sort of, sort of moved quietly and through gradualism moved away from Jesus, but they left him running. So, you're risen from the dead, and you're going to have your first meeting with the disciples. What are you going to say? <laughs> what would I say? Look at chapter 28, if you will. The angel speaking to the women in the first part of 28, verse 7. Verse 6, he says, come see the place where he laid. Verse 7, then go quickly and tell his disciples, he's risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you where? To Galilee. There you're going to see him. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go tell, I hope you have the right translation, my brothers. That's the only time in Matthew you're going to see it connected to the twelve. Here, the eleven. Go tell my brothers. A term in intimacy. A term of passion, family. Go to Galilee, and they're going to see me. Verse 16. So here are the 11 brothers to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. In between verse 16 and 17, in my view, is John 21, where seven guys say, well, let's go fishing. We got to eat. So they go fishing. Jesus is standing on the shore, hollers out to them, hey guys, you caught anything? No, nah, we've worked all night. Go to the other side of the boat. You know the story. But not all 11 were there, four are missing. And so in verse number 17, the disciples see him, they worship and some doubted. What's interesting to me is this is the one place in Matthew and possibly one other. We may, won't have time to look at for time's sake today, but where you have worship and doubt in the same verse. Worship has this idea. In fact, really, when you look at the, the Greek term, the Greek term is half of the uses, almost, I think, one shy, half of the usages of the word worship in the New Testament are found in Matthew. Half. And what worship is, maybe if you look down here at verse number 7, where we just read a little bit before about the women who worshipped. They, they, or verse 9, Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings, and they came and took hold of his feet in worship. They, the idea has the, is to fall down. To be level with the ground and to be, low this, to be below this one that is in front of you because he is worthy of all honor. And so they are on the ground in verse 9 and they are grabbing his feet as if not to let him go. In verse number 17 you find the same thing. They see him coming and when they come they all, in all probability, they fall down. But when, within the hearts of some, you see the word doubted. That, that term is only found two times in the entire New Testament. It's a word that means to, to hesitate. Both times are found in Matthew. You know where the other time is? We want time to turn, but 
chapter 14, when Peter's walking on the water and he looks around and he sees all the waves and then he hesitates. He doubts. It's a term of hesitation. It's a term that, that means this. I can believe something with my mind because I'm laying before Jesus. I mean, this is Jesus. I see him with my eyes. Verse 17. I mean, there, there he is. But there's a hesitation because I don't know if this Jesus is really sufficient to meet me where I am at this moment in my life. Peter had the same experience walking on the water. And as he walks on the water, he sees the waves. And all of a sudden, that's when that hesitation came in. He begins to sink. The only other usage is right here. So here they are looking and they see him and they fall down. But there's a hesitation because Jesus, we know what has happened this last week. And we saw you crucified and we saw them, the grave. And I don't really know. There's a hesitation. Let me conclude it this way. When I look at verse number 16, this word of caution about the 11. I would just say this to brothers and sisters as you work through Matthew and you work through this text with me. And this is just preliminary to my message this afternoon. That the heart matters. Not how well you can sing. And not how well you attend. And not how well you look before others. But it's your heart. Your heart, God sees. My heart, God sees. But the most amazing thing to me is that, and this is, I'm so thankful, Jesus does not toss away damaged disciples. Jesus does not toss away disciples who made huge mistakes. Jesus does not say, you guys, I was with you for three years. What were you thinking? No. In fact, Matthew never chronicles what Jesus said to them except by command in verse number 19. Here's what I want you to do. Interpret the light. Make disciples. Jesus does not toss you because you sinned this week. Jesus does not toss you because you've got this hidden thing in your life that happened three, four, five, six, ten years ago, and now you wonder if you're damaged goods. That's not the way God works. It is the delight of God to take a tax collector and to totally turn his world upside down. And he's humble enough never to forget where he came from. So now he's powerful enough to be the exposition of light to the nations. Satan will take you and destroy you, will do everything. He will confine you. He will isolate you. He will bring up your past. I can't do this because, and you fill in the blank. I can't witness for him because. I can't speak for him because. But here is a sinner that starts your New Testament extremely personal with him. Jesus said, follow me. And I stood up and I went after him. I made mistake after mistake after mistake. I defected from him the last seven days he was on earth. I ran 
And Jesus says, go gather my brothers. Bring them to Galilee. I've got a command for them. Men and women, there is no excuse of any of us here. No excuse of any of us here. For being a a learner, one in a relationship with Jesus, and one who is committed. There are difficult things. I, I would close with this. One of the most difficult books to read. Anybody here read The Life Story of Adnarm Judson? My goodness. You read that book and you cannot hardly get through it. The, the, the life that he, he's one of the group of first missionaries sent from America. They, they land there. On his four-month boat trip over, he becomes a committed Baptist. <laughs> and so he has William Carey, his associate, baptize him, along with Luther Rice, who was with him. And then he and Anne make their way over to Burma, where there's, there's nothing there. Men and women, there's nothing there when they come to Ragoon. There's nothing there. Nothing. And on the way, she has a miscarriage, and they lose their first child. It's not long before they lose their second child. It's not long before Adnarm Judson's in prison, and for 17 months, it's so gruesome and grueling, you cannot hardly read the chapters. And she would make her way, Anne would make her way, as she is dying, physically dying, make her way to her husband. To, she said, when I saw him, and I'm, I'm quoting now, she said, when I saw him, he looked to me not as one living, but as one dying. He gets out of prison and his wife dies. Then the baby that she cared died. I mean, he has nothing. And his church at Ragoon is falling apart. So what does he do for three years, the most difficult years of his life, 1826 to 1830? He goes and he, he builds a hut out in the deepest part of a lion-infested woods. And there he lives. And there it, he digs a grave. And he sits by that grave. He says, that's where I'm going. And he sits there and contemplates day after day after day after day, contemplating this grave. This is what he wrote. God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I can't find him. End quote. The most amazing story is what happens in the next 20 years from 1830 to 1850 when God, through several events, one was the salvation of his pagan brother who died at age 35 and on his deathbed who had said no, no, no to God, got saved. It jolted him. And God began to build within this one who is a damaged disciple. God began to build into this one the need to share the gospel. And when he died 20 years later at age 61, Adnarm Dutchman died. There were 7,000 baptized believers in Burma, 63 churches and 163 missionaries that were in Burma when he died. Oh, by the way, he died on a ship, bodies out at sea. Aren't you glad that God does not toss damaged disciples? That's where we are. So think of this as we come back this evening. Think of this, because these next three verses are so amazing as he speaks to them for the first time in the book of Matthew. 
I just want you to think of the greatness of this one who's going to speak. The one who did not look at them and say, I don't need you. But this Jesus used them to shake the world. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, how's your heart? How's your heart? Not what people see, but who you are. Maybe you're one that says, I'm damaged goods. I've made mistakes. It's impossible for me to return. No, it's not. No, it's not. Not the one who said all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. He had to make a correction to their hesitation. And maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ. You're playing a game. You're an intellectual Christian. Are you ready today in your heart to say, here I am, Lord, here I am. Maybe there's some who are Christians that have really been struggling, maybe not to the degree of an Adnarm Judson, but you have said in your heart, where is God? Where is God? Would you talk to him? He said, I will never leave you. I will never leave you. I will not forsake you. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to open up the word. Thank you for the gospel of Matthew, a living testimony of a sinner who not only was saved, became a disciple, and became an interpreter of light, but he also was humble. So it was never about him. It was never about him. Lord, we live in a time where the most important thing is our bank account, our face, our clothes, our time, our liberties. What is our life but a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away? It's done. Help us, oh God, to grasp the heartbeat of Matthew. Help me to grasp the heartbeat of Matthew. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.